Welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 10. I'm Joel Payne from Resound Worship, and this is an interview special with record producers Dan and Matt Weeks of Weeks, Weeks, Weeks. Well, before we go ahead with the interview, uh, let's just catch up on what's been going on. It's been quite busy here at Resign Worship. Um, in the last few weeks, we've released two new songs, both by Ben Atkins, uh, Here I Stand, Grace Alone, and All of My Plans Laid Down. Now, those are definitely worth a listen. They're both on the Resound website now. Uh, we had the big sing in London with Noel Trudinick and Geraldine Latty leading a choir of over 100 people. And uh, we recorded two new resound songs there. So we hope we'll bring you those in the next few weeks. Uh, Matt Osgood's been busy re-recording one or two of his older songs, which is great. Sometimes it's nice just to bring them up to date a little bit. We're slightly more professional, I think, than when we started. And um, On the Darkest Day, which we mentioned in the last podcast could be great for easter do have a look at that as well something else we've done is we've created a new annual pass for our website so this was an interesting exercise we actually looked at how people use our website and we said what would be a good deal for you and for us which would offer you a lot of resources um, but it would also help us to have this kind of consistent income so that we can continue to produce resources and so we've settled at this 39.99 uh, price, which does mean that you could buy a pass and download everything on the website. And we're okay with that, because even though on paper it's hundreds of pounds worth of resources, we recognise that most people don't actually come and get everything from us. That would be crazy. People come and get a selection, and this just allows you to expand your selection. Um, but if you do want to just sit there for hours on end downloading things, then uh, do feel free. Go and have a look. Go and see how the, the pass works. There's plenty there that you might find really useful. Uh, and then finally, we also rolled out a completely new look website, which is um, importantly, it's responsive for different devices. So now when you get an email from us, uh, you'll be able to go straight to the web page on your phone or your tablet and it will look right and it will work right for your particular device. And it's also given us some new space to include a blog, um, to put our podcasts and other things which we're developing to help us work with the wider songwriting community. We've had a little bit of correspondence since last time. Josh got in touch. Um, we talked about 10,000 reasons last time and Josh was pointing out that the second line of the verse in that has a sort of mixed up rhythm. It seems to be different in each verse, particularly when Matt Redmond does it. And he was saying how in his experience, it's one of those the congregation wins scenarios where he tried to stick really closely to what Matt Redman does um, and found that the congregation just smooths it out and picks the way they're going to sing it. And it's really important as songwriters to try out songs and to accept that sometimes the congregation wins. They kind of know what works uh, collectively and we can try as hard as we like to push them down a certain line, but sometimes they they just go their own way and they win because it's if a song is congregational, then ultimately they, they have the final say. Uh, Stuart Chaplin also got in touch, tweeted us to say how much he's looking forward to a podcast on kids' songs. So, um, yeah, we'll do our best, Stuart. Um, I don't know whether it's going to be specifically kids' songs or more along the all-age or mixed-age lines, but we're going to see as we do that. Um, Sam's got one or two interviews lined up and he's got quite a lot of thoughts to throw in on this, so we'll work with that. It may be that we have to do something that's and you know, a subsequent podcast is very much focused on songs definitely for children, but we'll see as we do it what the crossover is and, and so on. And we've been doing the 12 song challenge. 12 song challenge. So just a reminder, this challenge for March is texts and tunes. And the idea here is that you find either a text or a tune and you write the counterpart for it. Uh, it was inspired by Stuart Townend talking about how when he began to work with Keith Getty, he learned that actually he was better at writing the texts than the tunes. Some of us might say he's pretty good at tunes as well, but it was really interesting to hear that he was, he was willing to go down a certain line, recognising that actually bringing in someone else's work made for a stronger song at the end of it. So we wanted to try it out and we recommended that you find a friend in your church, a songwriting colleague, maybe someone in the 12 Song Challenge forum and so on, and, um, and try and come up with something. 
Sam and I both gave each other something to work with as well. And I have to say, for the first week or so of this, things were very quiet and I was worried that maybe uh, it was all a bit too difficult. Were people going to be able to find a text or a tune to work with? How are they going to work with this particular dynamic of writing? And I have to say, I have now been incredibly encouraged. It's halfway through the month and we're seeing songs appearing in our forum. People are getting in touch to show what they've been writing. Uh, and it's been very encouraging. I think I've loved seeing um, the way that people in our challenge have been freely offering their texts and tunes to one another saying, you know, I've got this in my back catalogue. You might like to work with it. I came up with this once upon a time. Why don't you see what you can do? That's been a lovely flavour of the interaction. Uh, but it's also been good just seeing people work together. We've got a few songs on there now where it's a text and a tune by two of our 12 song challenge writers. They've got together through cyberspace and they've had a go at something together. And it's very special to see that relationship developing between writers. I found as well, some people are, are writing tunes or words with this challenge that are quite different from their usual offering. They're sort of discovering a new sound or a new lyrical voice by limiting themselves and actually letting, in a sense, someone else, whether it's the tune or the text, set the agenda for the song. And that's been fascinating and quite encouraging as well. The final thing that has encouraged me is just the quality of what is coming out. And now I don't know whether this is because people are simply focusing on one aspect of it uh, or are quite often are working with something which is produced by someone who of a particularly high standard, but we've seen some really high quality things. Um, lyrically high quality, quite a lot of thought into the melodies and so on. So I'm really encouraged by this, but I'd love us to think, and we'll talk about this more on the podcast, about how we can learn from this process. What do we now need to put into place in our songwriting method that helps us maintain this kind of quality? You heard in the last episode that Sam and I set each other something. Sam has already worked away and has come up with a set of words for my melody. So I'm really delighted with that. It's really lovely to hear uh, this tune I've had going around in my head for, I don't know, two or three years, uh, some quality words for it now. Although I did um, throw in a curveball by accident because um, I failed to tell Sam that in my head, two of the quavers at the end of the first line were slurred. And so he's crammed in some words, very sort of faithfully sticking to my rhythm. Um, I'm hoping that he can sort of unpick that and, and remove a syllable here or there and, and it will work fine. I still have to work on uh, a melody for his words, but I've got that very much in my mind for the rest of this month and if you're still planning to do this challenge and you're stuck uh, just a reminder of some of the places you could look for things to work with if you want a, a public domain hymn text or tune you could go to cyberhymnal.org there's all sorts of things on there just pick out something that inspires you or if you want something that's a bit newer then our um, sister company jubilate.co.uk is full of texts and tunes written by British writers in the last sort of 40 years or so. Um, it's worth saying those are still in copyright, but it doesn't mean you can't work with them. The way hymns are set up is to allow you to bring your own texts or your own tunes together and to work with what other people have done. It becomes more of an issue if you're publishing, but let's worry about that if it happens somewhere along the line. There's also uh, a website called folktunefinder.com. You could go and have a look on there. Maybe find a folk tune with the same name as your town or your church or so on. Um, and then finally, just any hymn book. Pick up any hymn book when you're in church and flick through and see what inspires you. We'll say at this point, avoid songbooks. And the reason to avoid songbooks is because you'll find um, song texts which have been written along with and at the same time as the tune. And that gives a certain kind of character, which in a sense we're trying to avoid this time. What we want are things which are very much written independently for you to try and bring them together. Uh, but ultimately, remember, it's all an exercise. Um, as I said before, don't get too worried at this stage about requesting permission and so on. Just have a go, see what you come up with and just let it unlock another layer of creativity. Who knows? This might become the way that you write from now on. Well, without any further ado, let's move on to our interview with Matt and Dan Weeks. Dan and Matt Weeks, uh, it's really good to welcome you to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast. Thank you. Hello, Joel. Hello. Now, um, we'll just fill listeners in a bit on um, our background and previous history together, because um, obviously you produce, the main point is that you produced our Christmas album for us uh, in 2014. And then I was thinking back, Matt, I think we must have, we must have met a few years before that. I, I used to do mm. some gigs when I was in London. I used to organise yeah. some gigs. Muswell Hill, wasn't it? That's right. And everyone who came yeah. always brought Matt Weeks with them. <laughs> 
And you always seem to be playing a different instrument, whether it was keyboard or bass or, I don't know, euphonium or something. Yeah, it was written into my contract. I must play at all gigs that are put on at Muswell Hills. Yeah, it's good. They can't, they can't afford to do them anymore. They've had to stop. And then... Um, it was a short run. Yeah. Well, obviously, we had to get... Uh, we got in touch about the Christmas album and um, booked mm. you guys in. So that's where I met Dan. Um, and obviously, you're both multi-instrumentalists from what I've discovered. And um, your your brother also is, and I think your dad is. And so just kick us off maybe, Dan, tell us a bit about your kind of musical background, your family. I think there's been quite a lot of music in your life. Yes, there has been. I just wanted to ask, though, what do you call your listeners? Are they resounders? Resounders? Yeah, uh, <laughs> probably. Yeah. <laughs> what okay, what would you call just, them? You know, I don't know. I think I just, we'll come up. We'll come up with something by the end of the, uh, okay. the chat. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Historically, there's always been music in the house. It was always kicking around as kids. Um, it was a wide breadth of music. Uh, it was all you know. There was world music. It was classical. It was rock and roll stuff. Uh, strange enough, there was very little um, worship music. Yeah. <laughs> um, for a long time, and I think I was actually 21 when I bought my first worship record. But that aside, yeah, um, we were always under the influence of music. Um, <laughs> but I hasten to add, we weren't pushed. We weren't pushed heavily into pursuing careers. I'm sure at some point there was a conversation that said, "You know, this won't help you very much financially." Yeah. Uh, um, but um, it's been good. Uh, yeah. So a lot of instruments around the house as well, guitars and. Also, the other main thing was that our dad always had a band, literally ever he since did. we were tiny. Yeah. So there was always this sort of, he had this band and it seemed amazingly cool. Yeah. And we always wanted to try and get into it, which <laughs> we eventually did. So that was a big part of it. I think, so you had well. to try and learn instruments just to try yeah. and get in the band. Yeah. Get more played, who, we figured out who was the weakest link in the current lineup and tried to learn that instrument. <laughs> <laughs> we shot them off. Now yeah. we had, uh, we Matt played trumpet and I played alto sax in the first... Uh, in our first mm. outing. Right. Um, yeah. I think playing the Red Line Brentford. It was probably illegal. Yes. We shouldn't have been allowed in, but we did no. play. We're definitely underage. But we wore some hats just to try and disguise our age. Did you? And did I painted you all, a beard on. Did you all head straight into a kind of musical career? Was that was that what you, what you did? Yeah, it was completely accidental. I was, um, <laughs> I, was a t- I was trying to finish my education, but kept getting offered, um, you know, recording gigs right. and things. Hang on, yeah. but you okay. finished your education with a musical education, so that... <laughs> It wasn't that you were trying to do something else. No, but yeah, during my sort of degree, I kept saying, oh, can I nip off for a week to do a recording, you know, <laughs> and this right. and that. So, yeah, sort of, it sort of just landed, you know, yeah. in front of me and um, accidentally just went, went into it, really, without thinking about the consequences. And, Matt, you've, you've played on... I mean, certainly, I remember seeing your name on lots of worship albums over the last sort of, I don't know, best part of 20 years, I guess. All right, steady. <laughs> yeah. It has been. Yeah, I think it has. Um, Basically, yeah, that's and true. Obviously <laughs> that was you, a short answer. <laughs> you formed this production company with your brother, Will. And um, so just tell us a bit about that. Weeks, 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 what sort of things you do? Um, and what is it? How, how does it work, working together as three brothers? Well, we set it up in 2007. I had moved to Helsinki, Finland, and I'd been there <clears throat> for about seven years and been producing there and working in sort of Finland, Sweden, the Nordics. Um, and then there was a project that uh, I think I got Matt involved with coming over to Finland. And then there was a project with Vineyard Records in the UK 2007. Mm. And 2008, man, I was, on, I was on loads of flights back and forward. And we decided that what we did is we'll give it a go, set up a company that was just a sort of an association between us under a brand name. And a good friend of ours, Chris Morris, who's now lives back in... Uh, Australia, yeah. a great artist. Um, he uh, he set up some websites first, yada yada, and we kind of formed it as a partnership that would just represent what we do as producers. So over the <laughs> years, um, obviously, Will at that point was only three years old, and now he's thirteen. No, um, now he's obviously you know he's working professionally as well. So yeah. we we represent ourselves in as much as we work as much as we can together on different projects so it might be writing it might be producing it might be recording for one another it might be um you know overdubbing stuff for each one you know other tracks that we're working on um and it might be developing artists that we seem to sort of developed a relationship with over the last couple of years that's a new thing that's that's happening um 
So we're trying to expand in different areas. So it's in as much as we will try and work together as much as we can. Um, more often than not, the budgets don't allow, but um, but we're involved with so many projects uh, yeah. together, which is good. <laughs> do you, do you each take the lead then on different different things that you do? Because I know when you know when, when we worked with you, we worked with the two of you. Um, I think it depends on the project, and it depends um, who's sort of at the helm, really. Um, I know there's things that Will has done that Matt's <laughs> featured on, and yeah. uh, I've got Will and Matt to play on some stuff, and um, we've shared production seats together. Um, I mean, it's it is exceptionally fun, and some of the best records I think we've made, or the ones that have been, it's kind of a good landmark records. The ones where we've all been involved, mm. and people have talked about those ones, and I like that. That's really good. Yeah. So I think with the with the advent of us um, putting a, a studio base together, um, that will give more opportunity for us to to pitch in with different works. And of course, we're involved with TV work and TV production work, where having a catalogue of music and developing a catalogue of music really helps, because you can be sharing music and putting stuff forward for different projects that you're working on. Yeah. So that helps as well. Tell us a bit about this uh, this studio. Matt, you were t- telling me a bit about how it came about and you're kind of working on developing, building it almost at the moment, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, it's really exciting, actually. Um, I'm going to a little Anglican church in Ashvale, just near sort of Guildford, and we've got a fantastic vicar who's a very sort of, he's got a very creative background or did fine art and he's a fantastic guy. So mm. we've been using a, a Methodist chapel as our secondary building for all our extra messy church stuff, you know, all that sort of thing. Mm. But the vicar's like, oh, why don't we, I want to, my vision for it is for it to be sort of worship, hospitality and creativity. So why don't we put a studio in it and see if that attracts other creative people to it as well? And I was like, yes, that's a fantastic idea. Let's do that. So um, we started with a fairly small you know, idea of how we could cobble it together and how much money we'd need. And then we went to the Methodists, obviously, to <clears throat> check it with them. And um, the ideas just kept flowing and, and it's just grown into a bigger design now, you know, with a control room, live room, booth. And, the, you know, the budget has been has just sort of come through for that as well. So, um, yeah. And we're looking to start building sometime this year soon. So, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. And um, it'll be amazing to see how it will affect what we do already and also the key thing also is that uh, we need to use the studio for community reasons as well so right. um, oh, that's brilliant. kind of the, the remit so it'll be exciting to see how you know so you'll have to look for local can... projects and absolutely things. Yeah. yeah and so we're really excited to see what emerges with, with that sort of yeah. community angle as well so yeah very brilliant. exciting times well this um, podcast is <coughs> directed at uh, we say we call it grassroots songwriters in local churches basically people in churches all over the country all over the world who are writing songs for their church not necessarily being sung anywhere else um, but mm. they're part of the kind of worship vocabulary of that church and I think for a lot of songwriters and certainly for myself in the past the whole area of recording of producers this kind of thing is a real kind of mystery a sort of murky world that, that we know nothing about and kind of wonder <laughs> Less um, of the murky. <laughs> what's involved? <laughs> so I wondered if you could kind of talk us through a little bit about what do you, I suppose what does a producer actually do and, and what might be a sort of the process that you'd go through between say, you know, I come to you and say I've got this I want to record an album. Um what kind of process might go through from there into actually coming up with a finished project? Well just to chip in with a quick um, kind of anecdote. I remember just in, a, in an attempt to demystify it a little bit. I remember yeah. working with a worship leader who was he was doing his first project. You know, he was writing, like you said, songs for his local church, and he got a chance to do a CD. And he'd worked with the producer for a few days before a lot of the band members turned up at the studio, and he just said, "This is just nothing like I thought it was going to be. It's just, it's just like when your big brother gets a computer and you you hang out in his bedroom and make a bit of music. You know, it's, he said it was just as." Sort of simple and as easy as that, really. So yeah. I always thought that was a nice way of putting it. You know, it's not some, you know, some strange, odd thing, but it's just a very natural, just collaborative music-making process, really. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to go the, into more detail? No, I think the job of the... At a very high level, the job of producers really to enhance the creativity that you, you as an artist are developing is to see the key points, the, the key styles, the elements, and enhance those either by bringing more musicians, more... Uh, a particular recording environment, organise the budget, you know, organise the recording process right through to mastering and finalising the project, maybe even helping out with artwork. And, and we tend to get involved with kind of the whole the whole run of everything, even up to videos and stuff like that. We, you know, we love to help the artists really find their identity and their expression. 
And in some cases, it's it's helping to shape that. So if someone comes and maybe in their musical development, they're not they're not far on. They haven't many years' experience under their belt. Mm. You know, the stories maybe aren't there, or the musical creativity isn't there. And you help to give opportunity to develop that and yeah. by putting certain styles and instrumentation in front of them and and mm. uh, pushing them creative, creatively. Um, that can really help. So there's and there's also a help of with the songs as well. So you're getting involved with the songwriting process, and that's what we call the pre-production stage. So someone maybe uh, will bring a set of songs with them, and we'll listen through to them all. We'll check keys and chord progressions and melodies and the grooves, tempos, um, instrumentation ideas, um, style, and we'll start to develop <laughs> the songs. And then when we're ready to move into a, a sort of a production stage of mm. actually record, recording and documenting the songs, um, you would hope that the songs would be, you know, 80% ready. Um, and the, the funny thing is, uh, we always joke that the pre-production stage actually is the most important part because you're putting a massive stamp on the songs and the sound and the style. Mm. And there's always parts that you record as demos in the pre-production that end up being used in the production <laughs> yeah. stage because yeah. they're the most sort of they're most important and integral part to the sound and style of a song. And then the artists as they develop. Um, and then of course once you get through production and you know tracking drums or multi-tracking or recording as a band together or going on location somewhere to a, you know, a house in the middle of the wilderness or an or a expensive studio in London. Um, once you've done that, you enter the mix stage. And yeah. we'll see that process all the way through. You know, we'll, as producers, we'll make sure that it, the sound is representative of, of the yeah. artist's Dan, intention. I, I was struck by a couple of things when we worked with you. The first was that, in, in many ways, the pre-production is sort of the most fun stage because yeah. it's the sort of it's the creative free for all, isn't it? You can just yeah. you can try anything, you can try in all kinds of ideas, and it, and it's yeah. you get a real sense of collaborating and and, and yeah. kind of symbiosis working together. Yeah. Um, and in some some cases, that we have to that's really important for us to judge that um, f- you know that fun element that free for all yeah. sometimes you want to push the artists and, and give a little bit of a you know a little bit of food a little bit of food for thought some creative ideas and then see how far the artists will go because they very rarely get that freedom um, to be pushed and be encouraged yeah. and to be challenged musically I was also struck when we were recording for example when we were tracking drums um, mm. how much you already had an idea in your head what sound, what styles, what rhythms and so on you were looking for. And so you mm. brought in this, you know, we brought in Troy, brought in this brilliant drummer. Um, but yeah. as a producer, you were saying, right, I want you to play this rhythm. I want you to do that. And and is that, do you are you kind of hearing the whole track in your head as you do that? Yes. In many cases, mm. there's a sort of a set pattern that we've got. There's a groove that we want him to deliver. So in some cases, of course, we'd say, Troy, have a little play, play it through. Or to any drum, you know, just get comfortable with the beat, get comfortable with the groove, the tempo, the arrangement. And then you start to hear their kind of personality in the playing. So by being prescriptive with this, the, the parts that we want to play, the way they play it will be their personality, their style, their delivery. So no two players will be exactly the same. Um, so in a way, we're giving them sort of parameters, a ballpark area to work within. Um, in some cases, they'll just once they've got that. That for them is the is the stepping stone. Is mm. the is sort of the is the trampoline to go off and then do other stuff. So it's getting them up to speed as quickly as possible. You know, Troy, here's a beat. I want you to play boom, 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 and then he'll go, okay, great, 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 and then he'll go in and say, well, I thought about this beat. What about this? And actually, then we're enhancing the track. But we rather than sort of start at zero and get yeah. to you know the point we wanted to get to, we're giving him a starting platform. Uh, as a competent professional musician, he's going to take that immediately and enhance yeah. that. Um, and they do that, which is great when you're working with good musicians. Yeah, and presumably if you if a band came in, it might be slightly different because they might arrive with their own ideas and arrangements and you're... Do you then have to kind of undo those or you just try and build on top of them? Yeah, you have to probably with a band, um, you have to sort of unwrap it a little bit first because obviously what they're doing is intrinsically linked together as you know in what in terms of what they're each doing as a part of the band so yeah there's usually a bit of unraveling to do in that situation mm. and how much just depends on how good they are i suppose but yeah um uh, i also how, yeah. i also remember the um the process recording vocals um with you matt i remember I mean, a couple mm. of things one i just remember you're sort of you're quite quietly encouraging which is a <laughs> i reckon it's probably a perfect personality <laughs> For, a, for somebody who's recording vocalists. Because it's really, I don't know, it's a really vulnerable thing, especially yeah, yeah. if you're not, you know, a lot of the guys playing are session musicians 
And then quite often you come to record the vocals and you've got someone who's not actually a... That's not what they mm. do for a living. And it's more vulnerable. It's more risky, isn't it, for them? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the main thing with that is... I, especially having been on the, the other side of that pane of glass as well as a yeah. you know like a session player that you you just do your you play your best or sing your best when you're feeling the most comfortable and feeling like what you're doing is of value so um interestingly like Dan was saying with the you know the drummer I I tend to try and let those musicians come up with what they feel first before being too directive mm-hmm. and and then just sort of move you know direct it from there and just I feel like that when they feel like what they've what they're playing is something that they've contributed, I think that sort of sense of value helps the performance. And it's the same with the singers, really. I think they've just got to feel comfortable. They've got mm. to feel relaxed. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's for me. That's the first thing. So, so even if you then steer um, them along, they, it feels yeah. like it's coming from them, even if actually you're you're inputting yeah. quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think I think that's a really important element of it. So um, yeah, yeah. And however, you know, also you could because you could chuck all sorts of technique things around at them but I think that will just suddenly make people especially singers yeah, yeah. feel a little bit inhibited like oh my gosh you know I just I just sing I've never thought about any of that sort of stuff so mm. sort of go for the confidence definitely first and um, any little sort of specifics come later yeah there are also environments where um, you can be afforded the time you know to relax yeah. make the environment work to the to the artist's advantage um, to give them time in between takes just to, to relax and recharge. I mean, most singers aren't used to, if they're not professionals, singing six tracks in a day. I mean, you just, yeah. it's exhausting. Uh, and then likewise for musicians, the concentration it takes to really play and, and be deliberate and execute it well. So it's important as a producer to try and t- sort of time the day in a way that gives people breaks. Um, and when we need to push a little bit harder, we can do that, but not exhaust them, yeah. uh, whoever's playing. So that's that's really important. We also did, um, you know, did a fair amount of recording in your bedrooms or spare bedrooms. Um, and whilst there's some of, some of the key things like the drums and piano, um, a lot of that happened in the studio. Uh, a lot of it is just, like I say, just kind of in a spare room at, at home. And I guess for guys listening to this, they think, well, I, you know, I don't know if I can afford to go into a studio. I want to make mm. a nice sounding demo of my song so I can share it with people. Mm. How important is the equipment, the the space and so on? Or, you know, do you think people can actually pull it off at home reasonably well? You can definitely pull it off reasonably well at home. I think it's been, there was, you know, wasn't it there's that Daniel Beddingfield album that he did in his bedroom, you know? Yeah. So it's definitely possible, you know, and with, you know, a small amount of decent gear, again, it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but something really solid. Yeah. Um, that will do the job, you know, and I think it's just, it's, for me, again, I try and think, actually, if I'm investing in some gear, investing in the instrument actually is going to make, I think, more of a difference to the listener mm. than the, the you know, analogue to digital converters that uh, you've got okay, at the end yeah. of your chain, you know. As, mm. as good as they need to be in a you know, professional studio, I mean, if you've got an amazing sounding acoustic guitar, then it's yeah. going to sound really good for starters, you know. Um, and also then what, just what you do with the audio once you've started recording it and you're fiddling around on your laptop with EQs and compressors, mm. um, I feel like it can very easily go wrong, mm. <laughs> you know, uh, you can quite quickly make some sort of errors that will kind of ruin the yeah. sound. But um, equally, you can you know, work wonders with all that technology as well. So, um, yeah, I think you can definitely do it. I think just, you know, it's, it's also like, interesting how many of the, uh, some of the biggest records, you know, musical history, maybe of the pop rock era particularly, um, have been recorded so badly. I mean, they just sound atrocious, but yeah. yet the musical experience we have with them, yeah. the atmosphere that we feel mm. and the reaction we have to them is phenomenal. <laughs> and actually, that is also a crucial part of what we deliver, is that there are some recordings that um, just can't be bettered or redone. And that little demo that you put together in the bedroom is just astonishing. Yeah, And, and it's a mix of that being an environment which we're used to, um, being limited by the, the gear we've got around us to make a really good really good job with what we've got and I think there is a certain skill in learning how to position mics and record things and use pop filters and EQs maybe a little bit to understand the room and the sounds that you've got around you um, and how the the, the room affects the sound or learning to tune the guitar properly or tune your drums or um, you know be able to deliver a vocal in tune or those kind of things which enhance the performance 
But yet there's sometimes where you just, it doesn't matter whether it was recorded, it's just a stunning performance. I think there was yeah. a track on the Adele album, wasn't there, the last one, which they ended up, was it Someone Like You? And they ended up going back to using the um, the demo vocal they recorded oh, okay. when they first tracked the vocal. Oh, yeah. So they'd been out to the, you know, studios in LA, yada, yada. Yeah. And they saw mm. them, we can't beat that performance. Yeah. Uh, point in case, slightly closer to home on that resound Christmas album we did. Yeah. I remember hearing the demo you did for, was it Ring Out the Bell? Yeah. Yes. Um, that was that great. Was a great, great demo. That was a yeah. great demo. Yeah. Elements of that, which we just couldn't recreate. You know, we just had to do something different. But there was something <laughs> yeah. fantastic in that. You know, at which point, Joel's so. asked us, "Well, why didn't you just use it?" Yeah, <laughs> what's wrong with you, fools? <laughs> it could have been so much cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk. Let's talk it about so that much more worship sound. sound. Mm. Uh, um, you know what I, do you know what I mean when I say that oh. worship sound? Are you right, opening so, uh, a can of worms here, Joel? Yeah. What do you? I mean, tell yeah. me. What do you think of it? Whose fault is it? Or is it good? Oh. I don't know. It's the question. <laughs> you want to blame someone? Oh, here we go. He's already got the guns out. Um, the, yeah, worship the worship sound. sound. I mean, there is a worship sound, isn't there? There is a worship sound. Yeah. There's a commercial product which has now been made readily available for the world to listen to and yeah. packaged into an easy listening sound that is recreatable either through backing tracks and or um, the basic instruments that you now have in your churches. Possibly, maybe. Um, yeah. I, think uh, it's, I think it's accessibility has kind of mm. mutated into globalisation. Oh. <laughs> did, you, did you like that? Yeah, I'm going to write that down. Write that down. Because um, accessibility is great, and obviously we want um, people to be able to pick up as many songs as you know they can and yeah. and want to use that's a good thing, but there's a point where, um, yeah, we sort of just I mean that's that culture of you know wanting to buy into a brand of you know and you hear yeah. these amazing albums and they do sound they sound great and there's you can hear the experience and the energy and it's fantastic, but then I think the the problem is that we suddenly want to recreate it even if we've got you know a violin player, two flutes, and a kid on like a horn and. Um, you know, three old ladies singing yeah. backing vocals. Mm. You know, if that's what you've got in your team, then I think you definitely need to play to your strengths. You know, do something which suits them. And, you know, I've heard about people that are fantastic, like a fantastic musician at a church, but stylistically wasn't doing that sound that we've been yeah. alluding to and played something very different. And in the end, that guy left the worship team because they much... They would much rather pursue that sound than that individual in their church. I thought that's that's shocking. That's really interesting. Yeah. So I think that that's always a little highlight for me. Think, yeah, just go for the people, not the sound. You know. But there's also something quite key in this: is that we're we're looking to recreate a sound rather than a song. Yeah. And that's a that's a massive difference in itself. (laughs) So in the last. I'd say five to seven, maybe even 10 years, we've discovered that as production has become more professional in the Christian environment, in worship environment, as we've been able to challenge creatively, you know, the the way in which we develop the songs, we've enhanced them with massive production budgets, which have made the sounds huge, big and expensive. Of course, the digital age has brought, you know, synths and keyboards and sounds and samples to the fingertips of you know, every spotty 13-year-old <laughs> yeah. in their bedroom, which is great because it means they've got fantastic tools to be creative with. However, the songs aren't necessarily that great when you strip it back. Yeah. And we find ourselves being servant to the sound rather than the song. So when we have to come and we talk about recreating, we're trying to recreate an atmosphere, a sound, not a song. It's easy to recreate the song. You play the chord, you sing the melody. But the way in which we create, recreate that sound is really be, we're becoming slave to that. And I think that's where there's the massive weakness in this. We're not all one sound. We're not all the same musician. And we're not all to be playing from the same kind of sounds. You know, even when we talk about indigenous sounds from different countries around the world. Why is it that in northern Sweden, Sweden or Malaysia, they have to be playing the same instruments and, and sounds and create the same sounds that, we, that Bethel have made? Yeah. Um, you know, hang on, there's, a, there's a, something really big missing here, which is that there's something about every tribe and every tongue, you know, and, and we can't forget that. And they're all to be given equal room, an equal platform to share their sound, their heart, their song uh, to their own nation and maybe abroad. I remember um, when I went to, we spent a bit of time in Peru. We went out to, to work with the church there and we arrived in the Peruvian Andes 
on the Sunday to go and worship with this church. We were looking forward to this. I don't know. Mm. We thought it was going to be really sort of Latino and mm, yeah. um, it's going to be, we we're going to discover all these new sounds and, and new styles and so on. And actually what we found really was they were singing Hillsong in, in oh, Spanish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was a Amazing. perfect example of actually, they were just importing a, a style mm. and just kind of in a sense, imposing it on their own culture. And then alongside that, they had some of these really traditional sounding songs which the older members of the congregation still knew and i think for us they were there was so much more freshness in those more traditional sounding older ones mm. than just a translation of the you know the well-known hill song i mean the irony is of course you want to be able to travel to a church walk in and have that point of access and mm. having you know a larger globalized worship um, market means that we can do that we can walk into any church in any country and say, you know, hey, I'm going to play this song and someone might know it and we're in. Yeah. Um, but there is that expression of, one, the localised church, who we are, what we do in our community and how we affect those around us. You know, that's the, you know, the way the folk song originated in the UK, you know, mm-hmm. in Britain years and years and years ago, singing in pubs, telling stories as the travelling singer, you know, went from village to mm-hmm. village. And, and, you know, these, these are, that's part of our heritage and so we want to build on that. And of course, I think there is room for younger generations and new musicians to find new expressions of worship. Yes, we want to be encouraging that. I want to be on the forefront of that musically so we find that we're inspired. You know, it doesn't have to be sung. It could be instrumental. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the fact that we very rarely find meditational music in on our contemporary churches these days. Um, so there's so much room, so much more scope and I think once we can see round this bottleneck somehow or just simply smash the bottle and say, you yeah. know, with, with today's yeah. age of di- the digital age that we can listen to, watch, download, be a part of um, events that are happening globally, we should be able to completely negate that. So I'm hoping that whoever the gatekeepers are, um, you know, they could be labels, publishers that, of course, demand to keep their business running but also are serving the church and I don't want yeah. to be rude about what they do you know it's important that they they give this resource to churches that need it that's, that that we can worship in our car worship with our iPods you know we can listen to music and be blessed by that but at the same time um, it's expensive to make music but if you can give something away or it's a great song how do you get to the masses yeah um, so I think there's there's encouragement well, yeah. and there's warnings in that yeah, because that's just a, the little challenge I would say to actually the songwriters, our resounders listening is, yeah. just a, a little challenge would be, what is your goal for the songs you're writing? Is it, mm. are you thinking, I want this to be a global hit? Or yeah. should you, and my challenge would be, should you be saying, uh, I would love this song to be perfect for my local church. And, you know, I can just imagine the difference in the song that would come out yeah. with a change of with with that change in focus yeah you know we've set uh, so, so we're doing uh, yeah. a um uh, 12 song challenge this year where we we've got about it's about 100 now about 100 songwriters joining wow. in who are Ooh. each month having a go at a particular challenge so the first month we did scripture songs where we gave them different right, passages yeah. of scripture just try turning those into songs it's really interesting to see so many different ways of using the same mm. scripture uh, yeah. for february We've asked them to write community songs, which are songs about, in a sense, sort of about the church community and for mm. the church community. And one mm. of the things we've done is we've set them a really narrow vocal range for it. So we've said they Brilliant. can't go outside yes. from a C up to a B flat. So it's really wow. it's pretty narrow. Yeah, but it's wow. the kind of vocal range where you know, actually, if I did that song in my church, I yeah. pretty much know everyone could sing every note of that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. quite often, we we I think sometimes we sacrifice. <laughs> full participation for musical excellence or, or, or what we think is musical excellence, don't we? Mm. Yeah, mm. no, that's brilliant. Because I've been thinking the very same thing, just having started to lead up my little you know, Anglican church, like I said, it's exactly the same thing. If there's a song which I love and it's got that one of those octave jumps yeah. in it, it's just you have to write it off. It's not going to yeah. work. And it's, mm. you know, I've been thinking exactly that. Let's, yeah. The songs that do go down, like, I remember thinking, here, here I am to worship. Yeah. That that works really well. Really and narrow actually, range, other isn't than the it? Bridge, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like a six-note a six note range. You know, <laughs> yeah. you think, that's brilliant. Yeah. And other things, you know, along those lines, I thought, yeah, we've got to keep, um, you know, keep to some of those more rigid guidelines. And I'm yeah. sure you could find something that, that works. Can I ask you, as, uh, uh, as really musicians well. and producers, you know, you, you spend your day job you know you're both very good musicians as it is uh, you spend your day job working with you know session musicians you know brilliant musicians 
Um, and then you're in church on a Sunday and you're working with essentially a different group of musicians and certainly a different group of singers. And I you know, often hear songwriters say, oh, but I want to push the boundaries. And I, Do you find, mm. do you have to put a different head on when you're in church or when you're producing a record? Yeah, I think when you're, you know, at a conference or something or, you know, on a recording, producing, yeah, there's, you can just go into that, that sort of minutiae, you know, that detail, um, uh, partly because you can, you've got the level of musicians there that yeah. can do it and, and you want to for the production's sake, etc. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, different on a Sunday morning. Um, but I think, again, you just, you know, you just think of simple I mean, it's just simple things that you were, t- you know, I was told as I was, you know, growing up and learning that made a massive difference to the way you approached playing music. Mm. And you, you think, okay, what are those things that I can drop in, you know, just focusing on, um, you know, timing or just, you know, think about nothing mm. else but just, you know, as a bass player, just do this job or as a singer, try that job. You know, the, all the little tips that you've, you know, picked up for each instrument or each approach just trying to drop one little thing in just that will make a, as big a difference as possible can i ask you one quick question before you dash because mm, we've got we've got one question that we ask all of our interviewees oh and that is so yeah. dan you've got a moment to think about this um right. it, knowing all the worship songs that you know can you pick one that you listen to and you think i wish i'd written that one <laughs> uh, I have an answer for that what? if it's not a worship song. Oh no, come on, it's gonna um, be a worship song. But if it's a worship song, um, it, maybe it's not maybe it's one that you think I couldn't have written that because it's stylistically different or, or something or Yeah. Well ooh, Do you wanna know be... what um do you wanna know what one two other people came up with? Just to, yeah, well, so uh, Town End <laughs> Yeah he came up with the Servant King. Oh that's interesting. Uh, that was on my mind. Oh, well. nice. Ke- oh. Uh, Graham Kendrick picked out um Our God is Greater, Water You Turned Into Wine. Okay. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah interesting because the Servant King was on my mind as well, and um, some of those old Kendrick ones. Just, it, just lyrically, you go back to them, and even if, yeah, you don't think they're still, yeah, stylistically. What if, okay, what if you can't lyrically. have that one? You can't have the yeah, Servant King. Can't have that one because <laughs> Stuart's got that. Yeah. Uh, do you know the Humble King by Brenton Brown? Yeah. Um, but yeah, love that one. Oh, cool. That's good. Lovely. Right, I'm going to add you to my list. You can hear me typing. Yeah. There you go. As we speak. <laughs> Matt Weeks. The Just thing. in between um, Stuart Townend and Graham Kendrick, I might yeah. by any chance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <Marvelous>. <laughs> That's, me, That's a good it? time. That's made my day. Oh, lovely. Matt, it's nice to speak to you. I'll yeah, uh, you too, guys. Uh, go off and pick the kids up and well, uh, I'll wrap up with Dan. Yeah. Um, Dan, while we're, while we're there, what did you, uh, Dan, what did you, what song came to your mind? The first song that came to mind was um, some of the choral pieces on Foray's Requiem. Oh, yeah. So the Pia Yezu on that is um, is stunning. Um, and when you're sort of talking about ang- ambiguity of lyrics and maybe, you know, talking around the spectacle of who Jesus was and the life and the works of his spirit and his kingdom, yeah. you know, there's, there's some really big stuff in that on that um, collection of works. So I would love to have been able to write something like that, which is way out of my, uh, my talent zone. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I I think something not contemporary, but um, something that fails to first. And I mean, it never fails to inspire. I was going to ask, I was going to, my other way of phrasing the question was if you could go back in time and pinch it before they wrote it, just thinking, Oh, I know it now. I'll go back and write it myself. That could be, that could be quite hard work. Couldn't it? It's a lot. Yeah. I think there are songs that also stick in our, you know, in our lifetime that make a big, big impact on us, and we yeah. latch onto those. and And I think that's the same for the church. You know, there are certain generations that find certain songs just minister to them really well, and it stays with them. and And, and they will always work. And I think that's the trait of a great song that we hear in our in the worship community in our in churches when you know there are still classics that we sing from the mid 80s you know and early 90s and these songs are still strong because the lyrical content enhances our worshiping experience yeah and that that for me kind of sets certain people apart that you know however we want to kind of look at the commerciality of worship music yeah you know when you consider the skill and talent of someone like redders matt Redman, who can who can just unpack the concept of grace in three lines and and yeah. we understand it, and the worshiping body gets it. But at the same time, of course, he's on a musical journey, and he's ministering to a global audience. And you know, I think for some of us, they are set apart to do that. Likewise, with preachers and speakers yeah. and writers, filmmakers, 
um, artists, you know, uh, everyone within the creative field have an opportunity to minister beyond our bound, you know, the, the, the borders of our own countries. And some of those are set apart from that. Others are, you know, we're called to really minister to a local church. It's funny you asked about the, what happens on a, on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, and I've been leading now for quite a while. I took a long break, maybe about five or six years, and then came back to it and really felt that I was, I was picking songs that just that set obviously it's about the message it's about the words we want to sing and as a consequence if the melody was slightly difficult um i kind of would put that second to the words that we were singing so it was about the message and the interaction yeah um and that people might not guess that i suppose as a you know when knowing that you're a producer music is your thing you know you've mm. got tunes running around your head all day long and so on actually when mm. you get in when it, when kind of push comes to shove mm. it's the words that i think but that's that's what we're called to do in, in, in leading is to give people songs and an atmosphere that they can focus on on him yeah um and equally i think what's interesting in, in a character that's sort of appeared um, when leading is characteristic is is more of the prophetic singing. So actually using a, a, my sort of melodic instinct, making stuff up, singing words. If someone sings, it says a prayer, reacting to that with song. Yeah, and that's a great tool for I think in a write, songwriting situation is when we, I think we did it a couple of times with the songs. We talked about the lyrics. We talk sometimes with an artist. We'll talk about the song and they'll paraphrase the lyrics. They'll talk about it in detail. And actually, they then come up with, as they expound on the lyrics that they've written, they come up with eight or nine other great lines. Yeah. And suddenly, we're getting much more detail. So to learn to do that and exercise that in a prophetic, prayerful situation and singing back a response that people have prayed out loud so that we collectively can join in together, that's a fantastic thing. I'm really wanting to get into more of that. Um, So that's a big challenge for me at the moment, is learning to do that better. Brilliant. Dan, thank you very much thank you Joel great to talk to you both Uh, thank you on behalf you can pass on our thanks to Matt as well it's been great to hear from you it's been good to hear from your experience and I think as well to hear some of your your kind of words of passion about worship about God and about the Mm. local church Um, and I think it'll be a real encouragement for the people who are listening who are out there serving their local churches and kind of trying to do the best thing that they can do so thank you very much you're welcome it's great to talk to you Joel bye bye So it just remains for me to introduce to you our featured song, which is uh, Here I Stand, Grace Alone by Ben Atkins. I particularly love this song because I think Ben has a gift of writing very short phrases that condense into two or three words quite a lot of deep truth. I encourage you to go and just have a look through the words of this one on the website. It sounds in many ways like a fairly typical worship song, but he's got a real gift um, lyrically in that respect. So I think it could be really helpful for your worship. Thanks to Matt and Dan for spending some time with us this episode. Thank you to you for listening and do get in touch with us on Twitter at Razan Worship, facebook.com slash resoundworship.org or email us on podcast at resoundworship.org. Until next time. Here I stand on holy ground But by your grace I live Even in my darkest sin I know that you forgive It's your grace and grace alone That keeps me on my feet By your grace and grace alone I'm alive All I have been All I will be Covered by your grace alone Loving kindness Lavished on me I'm completely Covered by your grace alone Jesus breathe Over me Lead me once again Perfect my wayward steps 
So I am not condemned It's your grace and grace alone That keeps me on my feet By your grace and grace alone I'm alive Covered by your grace alone